0: So what if everywhere you went, there was a little descriptive text that popped up above somebody's head to tell you the hardship that was burdening them? What if that happened today? Among us, what would the text be that appears over the head of the person that you're with there on the pew? Every life has a story, the Chick-fil-A training video says, and every story includes hard things. If you look closely and if you listen carefully, you will see that in everyone that you meet. And you know that that's true with everyone you know, and it's true about every one of you. Life is just hard sometimes. Why does life have to be so hard? And how can we cope with the hardships of life? You don't have to read far in the Bible story of mankind to discover why life is hard. Life is hard because the tempter entered the the human story It's recorded in the third chapter of Genesis, and theologians say mankind fell. What the Bible says is that men and women violated God's law. They sinned against God, and as a result of their sin, a curse came upon them. A curse came into the garden. A curse came over the world. It's important to acknowledge that life is hard. And that life is hard because the earth is and the people in it are cursed and the struggles are real. And they can be devastating and they can be deadly. And they won't yield easily to a prosperity gospel or to cheap pop psychology. You can't buy something that will make them go away. You can't travel somewhere and escape them. There's a little advertising gimmick I kind of like. Have you seen the Life is Good t-shirts? The Life is Good bumper stickers. I kind of like that. I guess I would like you to think of me in the optimist category. I'm a Life is Good kind of a guy. And you see that little Life is Good mascot. Have you ever seen that? His name is Jake. You guys are just looking at me. You got to like nod or grunt or say amen or throw money. I mean, just do something, you know, throw money. Um, little Jake is always, he's not, he's never watching TV. He's out running or biking or paddling a kayak, or doing something strenuous outside. And Jake is, and to Jake. He's always smiling and his life is good. And, and that's only true to a point. For years, I had a life is good sticker on my Jeep. And life is good, it's good in its original form, the way God created it. As a matter of fact, that's the way he described it. In the garden, he just kept making things and then going, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And In the first two chapters, there's a little refrain about everything. It's good, everything is good. Until it isn't good, our unbridled optimism ends where the curse begins. It's probably more accurate to have little bumper stickers that say life is hard because it is. And this is what it says in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve participated in sin. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, God's talking to Adam. You've eaten from the tree of which I commanded you saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. And you will eat the herb of the field, and in the sweat of your face you shall eat it, bread, until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. So as beautiful as the earth is, it's not all flowers and bird songs, now is it? Every day isn't a sunny and delightful day. I like to say about our place, every day is a beautiful day on Bittersweet Farm. But that's kind of optimistic thinking. Sometimes it snows heavily, and that's beautiful, kind of. Little furry creatures commonly grow up, and then they eat each other. You can watch programs on TV with that kind of thing. According to the most reliable sources, the 8th chapter of Romans, where we're going to go a little bit later today, the earth is actually continuously groaning under a curse. And it has been since the Garden of Eden when sin first crashed the human party. And that really does explain a lot when you think about it. It's important to understand. Don't expect an easy life. You li- you're cursed and you live in a cursed world. Now, I'm going to say more than that today, or I would cause nothing but collective indigestion. But it is important that before we move on, we acknowledge, why is life hard? Because it's cursed. The Bible isn't shy about telling us that. Because the earth is full of the glory of the Lord. But a lot of really bad things happen on God's beautiful earth every day. God's creation is beautiful beyond belief. And we're a part of God's creation. We're actually, human beings are actually the pinnacle of God's creation. But because of sin, creation has fallen and is groaning. It's lamenting. It's groaning. And we all groan with it. Let's be honest. Some of you, the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is you groan. All the old people just laughed. But they were groaning earlier this morning with me. We get up and groan. And that's the way it is. Because of sin, creation has fallen, it's groaning, we're groaning with it. The scriptures actually say in Romans 8, the spirit groans. We groan for a time when the curse will be reversed, for a time when the earth will be redeemed. The Bible says it will be redeemed, it'll be renewed, it'll be restored, it will be reborn, it will be in Romans 8, it'll say it will be delivered from the bondage of corruption or from deterioration someday. But right now we groan with it because we're a part of creation and we suffer the effects of the fall and the curse. Paul wrote it. We groan within ourselves. And then he uses the term that he exchanges with hope. He, calls, he says it's eagerly waiting, eagerly waiting for the adoption or for the full adoption to come through. The redemption of our body. And the Bible says the spirit groans making intercession for us. So I'm a glass half full kind of a guy. Put me in the glass half full category with all the other good guys. And sometimes people will question the appropriateness of my optimism. And they have good cause. The curse is on creation. Everything isn't rosy. Something really is desperately wrong. It's not always balmy summer evening. The stars are not always visible high in the dome of heaven. People hurt people. People suffer innocently. Children are abused and neglected. Maybe you were abused. Poor people are commonly oppressed. There's injustice and there is depravity all around us. Women and men are often mistreated and abused. The evening breeze doesn't always bear the scent of the fragrance of flowers. Sometimes we're overcome with the fumes of toxic, dying things. As long as we're in this sin-cursed world, there'll be weeds to whack. And there'll be thorns and roses growing together. And that little one-in-a-million snowflake will sometimes gather in angry anarchy and wipe out the idyllic Alpine village in a violent avalanche. Welcome to church this morning, right? But it won't always be that way. There'll be a regeneration someday. There will be a time of restoration. This is the promise of the Bible. in, in, in the scriptures are clear about that. This, we're trying to clarify this to help you today. Jesus one day will reign forever. And the new Jerusalem will come down out of a new heaven and will settle upon a new earth. That's it though. That's the last word of the Bible in Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Peter said it this way. According to his promise... Look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Creation is awesome and you're a part of that, but creation is fallen and you are also a part of that. And one day creation will be redeemed, and you are invited to be a part of that through the atoning work of Jesus. So as a result of the fall of mankind, if I haven't made this abundantly clear already, we live under a curse. The ground is cursed, creation is cursed. The Bible immediately says to Eve, you'll have pain in childbirth. He immediately says to Adam, you'll earn your bread by the sweat of your brow. Before that, he cursed Satan, said you'll crawl on your belly. And then he said thorns and thistles. And This is a synopsis of the passage in Genesis chapter 3, foundational truth about humanity. So for you to understand the world you're living in and for you to crawl out from underneath the the pile of sharp rocks of pain that you and your family have to crawl out from underneath of. You need to understand where the hurt is coming from and how to fix it. And this is why our series now, from now uh, for the next six, eight weeks, is Life is Hard. And we're going to deal with what are the biblical means to deal with the hardships of life. In In the garden, there was immediately guilt when sin happened. And you've experienced that. The sharp rocks of guilt. And immediately they ran and hid. There was shame. Who hasn't experienced the shame of guilt? You've experienced that. Maybe right now you have a measure of shame that was introduced in this fall. And then there was immediately, wasn't there, wasn't it, isn't this human? Blame. Remember that? Oh, the woman you gave me. And then, you know, it's almost like Adam is saying, God, you gave me a bad, I got a bad apple here. See what I did there? With the, yeah, it's a, no extra charge. And for the record, it, it probably wasn't an apple that came from a... But anyway, there was there was broken and strained relationships between people. The scriptures teach that in, in a kind of unique way that Ab and Eve will have relational strain now. If you're in a marriage, you probably understand that. You're going to have... There, There were... In chapter 3, you have the introduction of sin and death. And in chapter 4, you have a brother killing another brother. Have you experienced this? You've never seen such deep love as what you have right there in your own family. But you also have relational tension with the very same people. Like when your brother tries to sleep on your side of the bed. Or your sister stretches your favorite sweater for her date. And those are just funny things. It gets ugly after that. You know, they ever had a family reunion that didn't really quite go so well, and you drove away weeping? Don't expect an easy life. The Bible tells us right away not to expect an easy life. Don't expect a perfect marriage. Don't expect a perfect family, or a perfect job, or even a perfect church. I mean, you should have seen the elders trying to set up a tent yesterday. That was hilarious. We pray together better than we set up tents. We got it done, and nobody got hurt, but it was interesting (laughs) to watch. It's like we we're about to vote somebody off the island. You. <laughs> Probably me. Anyway, the, the rest of the Bible, though, I want to tell you. The rest, is that okay, elders? The elders look at me like, yeah. the rest of the Bible is an unfolding drama. What's the word I'm going to say? Of redemption. And what's that? That's buying back out of bondage and corruption that which is damaged by sin. The story of the Bible is a story of redemption. It's a romance. It's an adventure. It's frightening. It's a mystery and it's terrifying, but it's a, it's a story of, overall of, of redemption. There's a broken relationship at the beginning and a restored marriage at the end. It starts in a garden and goes dark through a dark valley of the shadow of death, but ends in a garden paradise. And this is the work of Jesus. So the rest of the Bible is an unfolding drama of redemption. So we don't expect an easy life, but there is a plan for redemption. Do we have a little slide on that right? Get this in your brain for all the rest of the sermons that we're going to give in this series. Remember, this trouble that we're talking about is a result of the fall. And if the problem is sin, the answer is Jesus. And that's true with everything. How does Jesus want us to answer this sin problem? Didn't, didn't, I'm just not suggesting the answers are simple or they're easy to come to. They may be difficult to untangle. But this is, uh, so today what I want to show you in a really, so what I'll do in this series is, I'll, I'll tell you, we'll talk about relational problems, we'll talk about various problems that we have, but then we'll go to scriptures and we'll show you scriptural means for you to to lean into hope and not despair in those areas of your life and practical means. And we're going to begin today by talking about how to live a blessed life in a cursed world. I want to show you four different things the Lord has given to us. Take your Bibles look at Romans 8. And in a passage, in, in one of the richest passages of the Bible, I would just want to, there's so much that we could teach and we could spend, we could do a whole series, of course, on just a few verses here. But I want to sweep through it this morning. Before we have our barbecue chicken and, then, uh, and, our, and, our, and we gather for our conversations and our games and we watch the children play, I would like for you to hear me as I show you four things that should encourage you if you've ever driven away from a family reunion with tears on your face, or if your mom just died and you were a long way away, or you heard this cancer word, something that will help you. So let me show you these things. I'll just tell you what they are. Number one, you have the hope of future glory. And that outweighs the heaviest sorrow. Listen to what the Bible says. This is from Romans 8. I would suggest you hear me read it. And that you go home and read it again in a number of different versions. Read the living Bible version of this. A paraphrase of this. But here, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. This is gonna be a placeholder for the word hope in the next verse. Eager longing or hope. The creation is eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Did you catch what that? That's just a reference to what we just talked about in the garden. And then that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. So you see what this passage is saying is creation is watching Christians for the time when their bodies are redeemed, like, our, like the body of the Lord Jesus was resurrected. Creation is watching for Christians, because when Christians get redeemed, creation gets redeemed. It literally happens. This is what the passage is saying. The whole world, the whole creation is groaning and waiting eagerly for that resurrection and restoration and that ultimate new world, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, when things will be right. And we have that longing within us. And wise people, Lewis, C.S. Lewis continuously wrote about that longing that we have for a place we've never been. That's within all of us and it surfaces in all of literature So there there you have it in in verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing. Verse 20, creation is subjected to futility or emptiness, not willingly because of him who subjected it in hope. God let it happen. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groaning inwardly. Even though we're believers and we're possessed by the Holy Spirit, we still suffer hardship. We wait eagerly. There it is again, same phrase. Creation waits eagerly. We wait eagerly. And there's a, there's a, there's a practical tip in that. Wait eagerly for the adoption of sons for the family to be reunited, for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, this eager waiting hope, we are saved. We're delivered by this hope. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Wouldn't be hope if you saw it. It's hope because you look forward to it. For who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. So this is the idea. You have the hope of future glory while you're passing through the hardship that you're facing, the aging, the pain, the death, the arthritis, the wayward kids, the difficult marriage, Vince and Danelle, how are we doing? We got, we got thumbs up back there, the newlyweds. Do you want to give Vince, Mr. and Mrs. Vince and Danelle Leffler a hand of celebration there? Why don't you stand up for a Stand, Stand up, stand up, stand up, would you? Stand, turn around, gawk at them. Look at the newlyweds. Thank you, guys. Be seated. This is a delightful Christian couple that we saw their wedding. We got to participate in their wedding a few weeks ago, and they had a radiant testimony of their love for the Lord and their desire to serve him. And it was a beautiful, that was a beautiful wedding. Thanks for letting us be a part. And it was a powerful testimony. Your vows were the high point of that. They were so beautiful. Maybe you can share them with all of us someday here. I think. Vince, you're gonna hear Vince promised that he'd come and testify someday. And he has a he has a you you heard from Danelle when she testified at, at our Good Friday service a couple of years ago. They're a married couple now. Vince, Danelle, you guys need to know you're gonna have trouble. It's just the way it works. I mean, you got a, you you got a good beginning and, and but you're gonna have relational tension. Like, like, don't pick on them. Who here who's married has done it without any relational tension? Don't raise your hand. I will personally beat you up. I will punch you myself. Don't tell me. You know, people that go, my wife and I have never, gotten, never had an argument. I'm like, your wife doesn't have an opinion then. You know, that's a problem. You're in denial. Anyway, I'm, I'm happy for you. Maybe you have a different problem. But relational tension comes into marriage. And there's nothing like having a baby and seeing that little baby nurse for the first time, taking that little boy to his first football game, or taking that little girl to daddy daughter dance, or going shopping for the wedding dress. And there's nothing quite like the pain of some dysfunction that sin brings into that. So what do you do then? You have the hope of future glory. Well, there are things to do on the way. We'll talk about that. But ultimately, a Christian has a hope of future glory that outweighs the suffering. That's what verse 18 says. Do you see it? I consider the suffering of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory and the glory to be revealed or the, the revelation of Jesus as a weight to it. You'll see that a little bit later in a passage that I will refer to in a moment here. It has a weight to it that's greater than the weight of your sorrow. Greater than the weight of your tension, that's a, a future glory. It's something you look forward to. So, do, so don't curse God. Lament—that's appropriate—but don't curse. Groan, groan with him, but don't curse God. To curse God is to despair, is to turn your back on God. But to groan is to groan to God. Is to grieve to God. Is to lament to God. The Bible is full of lament. Lament is appropriate, but but rebellion is is going to compound your difficulty. Don't sin when you're sinned against, when you're under a sharp rock of hardship. Don't sin then by turning your back on God or doubting the promises of God, but then lean more heavily into God. Open your Bible, read your Bible, go to church, go to Sunday school, um, witness, pray, listen to a sermon podcast, listen to a favorite Christian musician. And restore your hope and trust because you have future glory to look forward to. Don't turn your back on God and give in to despair. Don't add sin to sin. Gary's in the hospital. He's been a believer since he was a child, but he has endured much hardship. He told me this. He said when he was seven, he fell out of a moving car going 60 miles an hour on his head. And it gashed open his head and he bounced across the highway in front of a car into the ditch. He got up to come back to the car and the the people that saw him go by turned their car around and come back and almost ran over him. This is Gary at seven. A couple of years later, a friend came over, they were working with the hay mount, and the thing was, and the, 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 they were loading the hay with a PTO, the power takeoff on an old Massey Ferguson, and the neighbor kid ran over him with the tractor. He was close to his dad, he said he and his dad, his dad was responsible for a fire tower up in northern Michigan, and they would climb the tower, this fire tower together, he said with no harness, you can imagine over 110 feet in the air. And he said his dad would let him fly a kite out of the top of the fire tower. He loved his dad. He was close to his dad. And before he was 10 years old, he was working alone with his dad on the farm. And his dad was pinned under a truck. And the little, little Gary crawled into the truck and looked up at his dad and had to watch him die. But Gary lost his wife last year, and he's in the hospital now. Will you tell a guy like that? Well, one of the things you remind him is we have the hope of future glory. There will be a day, he had a t- terrible tragedy not too many years ago where he fell three stories and hurt himself, and he's never been the same since then. But there will be a one day that we'll have the redemption of the body, we'll have our new bodies which will never get sick again and they will never die. That's what you tell them. You have the hope of future glory. Before I move on to the next point, I just want you to see something because one of the most important things about this series is the scriptures that I give you that you can keep referring to through the week as these difficulties come up in your life that you will inevitably have. You'll have the means, the scriptural means to address that pain, 2 Corinthians 4, listen to what it says in verse 7. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Paul, in the context of suffering is writing this. We are afflicted in every way, he says, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not given to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. He's saying, they killed our Jesus, but he rose again. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested, shown in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since so says, we have the same spirit of faith according to that which is written, I believed, so I spoke. Listen to how this ends. We don't lose heart. It's verse 16. We don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comprehension, as we look to the things that are seen, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, are passing, and things that are unseen, they're going to last forever. They're eternal. So how do you live a blessed life in a cursed world? You look forward to the glory, that the weight of glory is greater than the weight of your trouble. Second, you have the help of the Holy Spirit. We'll go into detail on this later, but take your Bibles and go back to Romans now and just notice what it, what it says. Already Romans 8 has introduced us to the Holy Spirit, though we didn't study that part today. That's a key part of Romans 8. In the argument of Romans, the Holy Spirit is referred to first in Romans 8. Now he's going to return to him and he mentions the adoption there in chapter 7. And, and earlier in chapter 8, he mentions the adoption but notice what it says in verse 26. Likewise, so we have the future glory to look forward to. And also, likewise, we, he helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to even pray for. You, have you ever thought, Lord, do I say, Lord, strengthen me to go through this or Lord, take this away? I don't know. You know, a, a, guy, a friend of mine was praying for his son who's going through a terrible time and he kept begging God, God, take it away from him. Take it away from him. And he said, one night the Lord woke him up it was almost like the Lord spoke to him and said, do you want me to take that away from him or do you want me to do what I'm doing with that? And so we said, well, Lord, Holy Spirit, you pray what should be prayed here. I don't know. So you see that we have the Spirit and he's helping us by praying for us. We don't know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. and He who searches the heart's knows. With the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So there's a great mystery in that, much teaching that could, but let's just say this. What do you do when you want to live a blessed life in a cursed world? You look forward to the weight of glory while you're suffering a, the light weight of temporary affliction. And second, you remember that the Holy Spirit is helping you. So obviously, you want to walk in the Spirit, you want to cooperate with the Spirit, you want to listen for the Spirit's voice. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Use your spiritual gifts. Anticipate spiritual fruit. This is what you want to do. My get back on the horse, if you will. Don't rely on your own resources. What is it we sang today? The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. You just say, God, you're gonna have to help me with this one. I can't do it. You have to help me. He will. And don't push the comforter away. Don't doubt him. Doubt the comforter. But walk in the spirit. And continually obey the impulses of the spirit, and and get your spiritual muscle memory. Like you, you know what it sounds like for the spirit to tell you something, and you do it, and warn you, and you take that warning seriously. That's the spirit. It walk, and you don't rely on your own resources. Understand this: the Bible has practical answers. The Bible has wise action, has ways of thinking and ways of talking about things, and means of grace to help available to us to help alleviate. Our suffering or to use our suffering and we want to it was like riding a horse when I was young and my grandfather was trying to teach me to ride a horse the horse threw me off and my grandfather who wasn't above cheap pop psychology said the Kaler boy is tough kid that lives down he's so tough when he gets thrown off the horse he gets back on and then my grandpa I remember he has kind of a flair for the dramatic and a little poetic bent he says he spits out his teeth and gets back on the horse. And I was like, I'm tougher than that kid, which I wasn't. Uh, But I remember him saying, get back on the horse. And then, you know, he had these quips. He's like, he considers himself kind of like John Wayne. He said, the way you learn to ride a horse is you get on one more time, then he throws you off. I'm like, oh, okay. That was painful. But I will say, you just got to get back on the horse. I know you're sad. I know your heart is broken understand that I've experienced that I know that it makes you doubt things that you've been taught I know that it makes your heart beat fast I know that it makes you sad and I know that you grieve but there are means and we don't turn away from the Lord when we're in trouble we turn to him in trouble remember that you'll need that someday and then number three we have the good purposes of God we have the future glory we have the help of the Holy Spirit We have God doing good things in our trouble. You know the passage, right? It's verse 28, 29. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those who he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. I don't understand all that, but it does sound good, doesn't it? Does that sound good? You're on track to take these ugly things and to build something beautiful with them. To take these, God is in his sovereign power, takes evil things and does good with them, amen? He takes bitter things and he makes them sweet. He takes bad things and he makes them good. He did that when they crucified his son, Jesus. And then Jesus blessed the whole world with that, And you have the hope of that glory in you. I do a lot of counseling or helping people. It's often helping people with relational tensions. I don't know that I consider myself a great counselor. I like to be better. But I will tell you this. I understand relational tensions firsthand I, I know how that feels. And so I often will talk to a couple. Vincent and Danelle, we talked about this, about com- principles of good communication in marriage. Guess where I learned that? It wasn't from a book. It, we, we talk about how to resolve conflict. Why? Because we've experienced conflict. And I know that you have, many of you have too. And if this isn't you, thank the Lord. I know you have other problems that are hard. But for those of you like I have experienced and and our family has a deep love and we also have relational tension, a deep, deep love and devotion and relational tension. It's like you could say dysfunctional. You could say hurting. And to be honest with you, that's where this whole sermon series came from. I felt like the Lord used that think, well, the people probably have that same sadness sometimes. Maybe you should help them. And that's what we should realize here. Sometimes I feel like I helped people. Not always, but sometimes. And they walk away, and I drive home, and I think, I think I helped them. I think I helped them. I'll go to a men's retreat, and I'll preach, and a guy will come up and go, you got that problem too? I, I, I I didn't think... No, thank you for that. That helped me. And they'll drive away, and i go, I think I helped them. And then I think, if I hadn't had those problems or tensions or difficulties and took them to the Lord, would I ever be a help to anybody? And if I never got beat up when I was in junior high, which was so cruel and wrong, so evil and wrong, would I be the help to junior high kids at camp that I feel like I've been? No, I think God was taking that evil, wrong thing. And he has given me a message that would help hundreds of little kids at camp to find their way to Jesus and out of their pain. And it's true with you. What is it that's breaking your heart right now? Jesus allowed that. God allowed that. And he's working a good purpose in it. You may not see it now. You may not see it until you get to heaven. But you trust him, you see. That's why you keep leaning. You don't sin more, but you trust him more. And you help, and he has a good, he has God's good, it helps us to know that God has good purposes in these things. And the fourth thing, and and we'll talk about this at length next week because it's so rich, there's one thing perhaps greater than all the other things that we must never doubt. And that is that in all of this, God loves you. He loves you. I know you're a sinner, I know, but he loves you. I know you've done shameful things. He knows that. But you can't do so many shameful things that he doesn't love you anymore. And through and in Christ, the longing that humanity has, that you have, for long, longing for love is met fully in him. And that's why you have this paean, this gorgeous song. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but he gave him for us all. How shall we not with him also graciously give us all things. Who will bring a charge to God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he that will condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, he's raised. Who's at the right hand of God? Who's interceding for us? Who shall separate us? Here it comes. From the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake were killed all the day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all those things, we're more than conquerors. Did you catch that? When you look at a person that's going through life, it looks like he's a sheep getting ready to be slaughtered. But in the lineup to be slaughtered, he is a super conqueror in Christ. You're crushed under the heavy weights of hurt and hardship. That's the human way of seeing it. And, that, and there's truth in it. But in Christ, who raises the dead and redeems the world and believers within it, you are more than conquerors, you're super conquerors. And I'm sure through him who loved us, and I'm sure that neither death or life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers or height or depth or any other creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, you have the unyielding love of God, which is greater than darkness and greater than demons and greater than your sin and greater than your shame. Amen? Amen? So I, I was reading Ashley Cleveland's book this week. She'll be here leading worship next Sunday. She'll be in a concert Saturday night. Y'all come bring people. I have a feel. The elders were powerfully united about doing this and we feel like the Lord is in it. I, I want you please come Saturday night, and bring others if you can. I was reading her biography. She's had a lot of hardship in life. And she's here because she has a testimony as a recovering alcoholic, and she's a singer, a musician, and a Christian woman. She longed for love so deeply when she was young and was usually rejected in But at one point, she had a boyfriend, and she got pregnant out of wedlock. So now she's going to have a baby, but she's an alcoholic. She can't stop drinking, and she drinks while she's pregnant. And she knows about God. She knows that God judges sin. She knows that God cannot tolerate sin. She knows that God hates sin premarital sex, and drunkenness. She knows that, and she feels that very keenly, and she can't stop drinking. In the first two trimesters of her pregnancy, she drinks. And then she, for the last trimester, she's able to stop, but she just knows that that baby is going to be damaged by her alcoholism. And then when the baby is born, her mother comes to her room, And her mother says to her, you had a little girl, and she is beautiful, and she is perfect. And Ashley said, for the first time in her life, it dawned on her that in spite of her shame and sin, God loves her. She said that was the beginning of her deliverance and her recovery. There would be ups and downs after that. But the way she understood the love of God was the path out of, the, of living a curse. You'll hear her whole story and hear her songs next Saturday night and next Sunday morning briefly too. But I wonder if you've experienced that love. God, like that, yes, he hates sin. And he put that sin that he hates on his son Jesus so that he could pour his love out on you. Don't no despair when you sin and you're suffering the curse of sin, or when your family isn't what you wish that it would be, and don't settle for defeat. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, David said. Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but I have overcome the world.